When something happens to your kitchen, you might say, This is ludicrous. But that won't fix your home. That will only get you the rapper, Ludicrous. Having trouble? Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. You need to file a claim? Holler at State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. You can file a claim on the app or call us. Thanks, Mr. Chris. No matter how ludicrous the situation, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. My brother-in-law died suddenly, and now my sister and her kids have to sell their home. That's why I told my husband we could not put off getting life insurance any longer. An agent offered us a 10-year, $500,000 policy for nearly $50 a month. Then we called SelectQuote. SelectQuote found us identical coverage for only $19 a month, a savings of $369 a year. Whether you need a $500,000 policy or a $5 million policy, SelectQuote could save you more than 50% on term life insurance. For your free quote, go to SelectQuote.com. SelectQuote.com. That's SelectQuote.com. SelectQuote. We shop. You save. Full details on example policies at SelectQuote.com slash commercials. What's up, y'all? It's your boy David with Blackwell Renaissance. And I'm here today to tell you guys about Anchor. If you haven't heard of Anchor, it's the best place to make a podcast. Anchor is a free app that has creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast straight from your phone. Anchor also distributes your podcast across all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many others. You can also make money on your podcast with Anchor with no minimum listenership. Anchor is everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So if you're looking to get started on your own podcast, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm. Are you looking to sell or buy your home or looking for an investment property? Look no further. BlackWealthRenaissance.com offers a free realtor directory with realtors located across the country to help you meet your goals. Just go to BlackWealthRenaissance.com and select Realtor Directory under Resources. That's BlackWealthRenaissance.com and select Realtor Directory under Resources. What's up, guys? Welcome to the Black Wealth Renaissance Podcast. Our goal of this podcast is to normalize black wealth and share helpful resources and tips we believe will be useful in attaining and maintaining generational wealth. Please feel free to rate and comment on our podcast. We would love to hear all feedback you have. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, to episode 20 of the Black Wealth Renaissance podcast. It's your boy, David Bellard, one for the Black Wealth Renaissance, checking in with my co-hosts, Jerry and Jalen. How y'all doing, fellas? What's good? What's good, my brothers? How y'all doing, man? Happy to see y'all. Man, doing good, doing good. Enjoying this Saturday off. How y'all doing? So good too, man. We making it. Our boy Kelly couldn't be here. Kelly on vacation. He at in Miami, you know, living his best life. So shout out to him. But we gonna rock it out with Otter, man. We got another special episode for you guys. On this episode, we got a real dope brother doing some amazing things down in Atlanta. You know where they building their own tables and all that good stuff, man. And uh brother named by the name of Tosin Oduwale. Yeah. Oh, guys. Tosin, how you doing, my brother? 
I'm great. Thank you for having me on the show. Oh, man. Thank you for coming and spending some time with us, man. Yeah, we appreciate you coming, man. You, you're a very busy man doing a lot of special things for the community. We're glad we could get you here. Pleasure, pleasure is mine. Yes, sir. Man, so just to give a little bit more background on Tosin and like what he's doing, man. Uh, started off in real estate. You say you've been in the game for what, about 10 years now? Uh, yeah, about 10 years actively. Um, definitely a bit longer than that as far as if you factor in when I was like looking from afar and trying to learn and figure out what was happening. But yeah, for, yeah. for about 10 years that I've actually been actively in that's a lot of experience, like 10 years of experience in the real estate game. So what, 10 years? That's like right after the crash, right? Yeah, yeah. It was okay. In the middle of the crash was when I was like, okay, this is the time to get in. I, I really saw, but I think a lot of people didn't because they were kind of hurt from what just happened. But when I started seeing that they were selling houses for a dollar in Florida and Nevada, and, and I was seeing that, you know, there were, tax liens and and, 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 and and banks that were like liquidating their entire portfolios for like $2,000, $3,000. I'm like, hey, I, I can afford this. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so I really started looking at stuff hard then. Um, I'll probably say my mother was a bit more active in, in, in jumping because she, you know, she had bought a couple of houses for two grand, fixed them up for like $1,500, $2,000, and then would rent them out um, automatically for like $650. You know, and she she was doing that all day. She was buying up entire streets in, in St. Louis and stuff like that. So it was a uh, it was a very very interesting time to kind of jump in the game. That's pretty dope that you got to see your mom doing it, and you're already kind of yeah, learning yeah. about it yourself. So you're just like, you know what? Fuck it, I'm a job. I'm a dive in and let me get to it. Definitely. So can we can we just get you to like introduce yourself? Give us a little big backstory of how you got started before yeah. the market and sure. just made you say, okay, I'm here. Let me, I let's go. Be an entrepreneur. Yeah. I want to do this thing. So, I mean, I guess just, we'd have to go back to my childhood. Um, my parents came to this country when they were really young. I'm Nigerian. My dad came when he was 17 years old. Uh, we didn't have any family here. Didn't have any friends here. Nothing. You know, my grandfather just said, look, you know, I want to send my son to America, so he could hopefully maybe be an architect because he used to draw when he was a kid. He used to draw a lot. So he was like, okay, you could draw, be an architect in America. So they sent him here when he was 17. Uh, he quickly realized that he didn't want to be an architect anymore. <laughs> you know, um, in the 70s, when he got here, um, you know, being an immigrant from Africa, you know, uh, very difficult to assimilate. You know, very difficult to try to blend in and, and, and say that you want to do something great. You know, it just wasn't the best time for it. So uh, he ended up moving to the Midwest and started studying IT, which is where he kind of found his niche. So uh, a couple years later, he started making a little bit of money with the contract work he was doing for small companies here and there. Uh, and then when he was 25, he moved to St. Louis, Missouri, and he bought a small office building, and that was going to be the headquarters for his IT company. And so um, that quickly went bankrupt about two years later. But one thing that he did learn in buying that building and that business going bankrupt was that real estate is very, very important. And so he realized that one of the reasons why he couldn't uh, afford the mortgage on that building was because his business, the asset that he owned, wasn't kicking out enough money to be able to take care of his expenses. 
And so that was a key mm-hmm. lesson, a key lesson that he learned very early on. Um, my mom came to the country a couple years later. She was, I think, about 21 when she came. Um, they had knew each other back from Nigeria. My mom was actually my dad's friend's younger sister. So they had known each other for years. So when my mom came here, um, since she was a kid, she knew how to sew and how to make clothes. So the first thing she did when she got here is she got a storefront on Olive Boulevard in St. Louis, and she opened up an African traditional wear clothing store where she'd sew, I mean, sew clothing for people that were having 50th birthdays, weddings. Of course, she catered to the African community, et cetera. And, that was, and she made very good money doing that. And all her profits, she would use and buy real estate. And so seeing that as a kid, like I've, I don't think I've ever seen either one of my parents work a job because they just always had to deal with having thick, heavy accents. Nobody ever took them seriously. They didn't want to like go have to like, you know, interview and like beg for a job. They just didn't want to go through that. You know, so they're like, look, we just got to find a way that we can, you know, uh, profit off of our own talents. And so from when they were young in their early 20s, when they came here, you know, they I think my mom may have worked as a substitute teacher for like a year. Um, I do remember when I was young, she did clean houses for like six or seven months when I was a young kid. But uh, I know all that money, as soon as they could get into something where they could start their own businesses or own their own things, they did that quickly. Like they did that with like a year and a half, you know, so seeing that growing up. And then once they did start owning rental property, I used to go with my mom to pick up the rent checks from the tenants. So it was more, it wasn't, I don't think she was trying to teach me the real estate business. It was just like, there was no babysitter. So you coming with me, you know? (laughs) And so going with her and just seeing that, I didn't know what was happening then, but in hindsight, when I look back, then it's like, oh, okay, that's what she was doing. And then it makes it, the lessons that you really learn in life are not the lessons that you get the day one when they happen. Is when time passes and you can look back and you can see how detrimental or how important they were to like your current lifestyle or your current situation. And that's how you can kind of see, okay, yeah, that was a good choice or a good direction. And so I think a lot of decisions they made when they were young and when I was young, I didn't really see the value in those until I was in my twenties myself, you know? So that was really how I guess business just became something that I just knew I was going to get into because you're gonna do, for the most part, what you see your parents do. If your dad's a cop, I'm pretty sure for four or five years of you being a child, you're gonna say, hey, I wanna be a police officer. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so like always just seeing my mom and my dad do the good and the bad, make their own money, I wanted to do the same thing. So when I was about 10, 11 years old, my mom, she had this rule, cause I got five brothers, we were six boys. When something happens to your kitchen, you might say, This is ludicrous. But that won't fix your home. That will only get you the rapper, Ludicrous. Having trouble? Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. You need to file a claim? Holla at State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. You can file a claim on the app or call us. Thanks, Mr. Chris. No matter how ludicrous the situation, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. And so my mom had this rule that, you know, we can only get one pair of sneakers a year because every time we buy shoes, she got to buy six pairs. You know, um, she would buy me my little figas or whatever. Since I used to be out and about riding my bike, playing, my shoes would get destroyed way before that year is even close to being up. And now I got these bummy shoes. And my older cousins used to always make fun of me and say that my shoes was talking because the soles would be (laughs) 
he would yeah. take my he would take my shoes and start doing like like a, a ventriloquist or whatever. Yeah. And start talking. And it made me feel bad. And so I was like, you know what? I'm gonna get I'm gonna get my own shoes. So I took a rake and I went to all the old people in the neighborhood that I knew couldn't rake their yards. Say, excuse me, ma'am, can I rake your yard for $15? And these are elderly people. So I know they can't do it, so they're going to say yes. And I did that two or three times, made enough money. When I was, I think, 11 years old, I bought my first pair of shoes on my own without my parents' help, and it was a pair of Chuck Taylors. Hey. Hey, I love it. And that's just like, I love that, that, that whole story so much because I guess getting to see the process because we were talking about this uh, with Kiera from Charm City Buyers. Yeah about how they bring their daughter around that stuff. And like seeing you on the other side as being a person who's basically with, in the same shoes she was in, seeing your parents do these things, you see the product in you. You see how far you done came from it. And just that spirit, it starts early off. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think with that, it was kind of like catching the bug because once I saw that I could buy my own shoes and I didn't have to go ask my mom or ask anybody, then, you know, when it started snowing outside, I'm grabbing the shovel, I'm doing the same thing. You know, I got my first BMX bike on my own. You know, um, it was times that, you know, I grew up in an African household. So six days out the week, we eat African food every day. And sometimes I'm like, man, I don't want no African food today. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, or, or fufu or whatever. So I was like, okay, but if I want to get Hardee's or McDonald's, I got to ask my mom for some money. And she's right. going to buy me that nonsense. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, I'll get my own money and start buying my own food. And I go buy toasted ravioli. And I learned very on, before I was 13, I learned that, like, it's possible for me to take care of myself. Mm. You know, like, I, I didn't grow up in poverty. You know, like, it was hard times, but I didn't grow up in poverty. I didn't have parents that was, like, you know, drug addicts or in the gangs or whatever. But it was, like, there, there was things they didn't give me as a child because either they just – didn't want to or just thought it wasn't necessary. And so I learned that like, okay, if you want something, you don't need mommy and daddy. Like you can get it yourself. Like you can go make a hundred dollars in three hours by cutting grass or by raking leaves or by shoveling snow. And as a 13 year old kid, a hundred dollars could buy you pretty much everything you want. Yep. I remember I was younger. All I wanted was a blade blade and a skateboard. <laughs> <laughs> So Tosa, man, I'm glad that you mentioned that like you went out there and got your own money and like they, that entrepreneurial spirit was sparked in you, right? But yes. the thing that I'm interested in is when did you make that shift from consumer to capitalist? Like when did your mind flip with that that information? I'm sorry, say that again? You said from? Like a consumer mindset to a capitalist mindset. Cause like, you know how oh. you said you were buying, like you go buy shoes and then you buy uh, whatever you wanted. like. When that mindset, that that's when it happened because when I was like 11 to 12, that's when I started, you know, kind of having like hobbies. Like I used to love BMX bikes and freestyle bikes and, you know, all the X game stuff. And like, I used to ride like rollerblades and stuff like that. So like when I started wanting stuff that I knew my mom wasn't going to buy me a $300 BMX bike, like they had the GTs and the dinos and the mongooses, like those were expensive bikes back when we was kids in the nineties. 200 bucks, right? Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So like, my mom wasn't going to, you know, buy me a $200 bike and then six months later, another bike come out and I say, I want that one. So it was when I started wanting stuff that I started figuring out how could I get it. And at that particular time, that was the easiest way. And it was, you know, it was tax-free. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, 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 I'm shoveling snow. 
you know, I'm breaking leaves. I'm doing like all that odd job stuff because I mean, you can, you know, get 15, 20 bucks. You do three of those, four of those after school, you make it 80, $90 every single day. And that's more than what people was making minimum wage. Minimum wage back then was like $5.15. So you could work a whole eight hour day and taxes taken out of it and not make what I just made. And so it was at that time where it started switching to where I started looking at everything. Like, how can I make money off? You know, and, and when I got to like 14, 15, when people started, you know, talking about wanting to buy cars, it was a big thing for people to put like subwoofers in their cars and stuff like that. So I started ordering all the little Crutchfield magazines that sold audio equipment and was trying to figure out, okay, how can I buy like, you know, these 15 inch subs and in the box and then selling to people for like a $20, $30 markup. So I was always trying to get into something that I liked or enjoyed. And so at that time, like I love music, you know, I've been listening to music since I was like five, six. So it was, it was at that time, it was real young where, where it changed from like a consumer to, to capitalist mindset. That's very vital. Like that's, that is, that's amazing because you got a lot of people, they'll have that, that uh, entrepreneurial spark. And sometimes they're still just going with the consumer side. But like you actually was like, you know what, ah, fuck that. Let me see how I can make more money off of what I'm doing and what I like and what I'm interested in. 100%. So, I mean, I think yeah, that's really cool. That's that's it's almost like those people, you know, like sneakerheads get a lot of flack, you know, because people spend so much money on Jordans. But it's like it's almost like those people that flip the shoes, you know. So it's like they're buying shoes they like, but at the same time, they're making money off of the same, you know, that hobby, you know. So I think that's really cool. And so, I also I can I can feel that too because I I was like that. <laughs> I mean I, I say as a kid I'm not that old now, but as a, when I was younger I was in uh, elementary and stuff like that. And my mom tell me I used to get in trouble all the time. She get calls from school. I'm making rubber band necklaces and selling stuff. You know I'm selling candy. I'm <laughs> you know I basically got concessions out the backpack. But like I, I like that too. Like that you you were selling from a young age. You you had that hustle and spirit. You know that that entrepreneurial spark like we were saying. So now my next question for you, Tulsa. I was wondering, when it, what was your first investment? Well, I mean, what did your first investment look like? My first investment? Oh, yeah, my first investment was, um, it was buying and reselling stuff on eBay. So um, when I came back to the country in 2005, there was a website called propertyroom.com. Mm -hmm. And it was basically a, a website, a company that like, they would get all the stuff that police seized from people in like raids or stuff that was like you know um uh, items that weren't reclaimed and they would auction them off on propertyroom.com so i would go on there and try to find like jewelry and different things bid on them get them low and then sell them on ebay so that was like the first like profitable thing that i was doing as an adult at 20 years old and uh yeah i remember finding like a three thousand dollar engagement ring on property room i think i got it for like 400 bucks and I sold on eBay for 2,600 bucks. And, and I remember that was when PayPal just started getting kind of popular. And when I seen that deposit coming through PayPal, I was like, man, I ain't, I've never had $2,500 in my life before. I was like, this is a lot of money. <laughs> I, I never had $2,500 before, you know what I'm saying? I'm 20 yeah. years old, I'm like, dog, I'm like, yo, I can really, you know, I'm in control of my life now. Like I can do whatever I want to do now. <laughs> and I think that's what really kind of, made me to always push the envelope is just, I've, I've always said that when I was a kid, there was rules. I had to listen to what my mom and dad told me. I couldn't just do what I wanted to do. Now that you're an adult, you literally are the one driving the boat. Like you can do what you want to do. 
So anything that you want to do that, of course, isn't illegal, isn't hurting anybody or whatever, like you can take it all the way left field. Like you can go as hard and as far with it as you want because there's nobody to tell you no no more. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Sure. That, that, that was just really how like the probably the last 14, 15 years of my life has been. It's just always trying to figure out how can I take things to the furthest and farthest extreme and just see where we end up, see where we land. Damn, that's that that heart of a lion right there, man. That's that that killer instinct. <laughs> I love it, man. So I like how you said, you know, it was whenever you came back uh, to the states. So you you told us before that you had went to boarding school in Europe and Africa. Uh, can you kind of speak about that experience and like how they kind of change your outlook on from whenever you're growing up in the states, then you get to see, you know, a little bit of more of the world uh i mean it was a good and a bad thing i mean the reason why i went over there uh it wasn't necessarily because my my parents were like you know falling out or, or, or super rich or anything it was because i was getting into a lot of trouble between the ages of 11 and 14 with uh you know what i'm saying understanding the capitalist mindset there was other things i kind of learned how to sell too you know at a very very young age and so um you know I, first, I think my first time in juvenile, I was 11 years old. And I went like two or three times that year. And then, you know, from when I was 13 years old, I had memorized all of the police shift times in my town. So I knew when they got on and got off. Um, I knew all the undercover cars that they used to use in that town. They used to use a red Jeep Cherokee. It was like a 96 red Jeep Cherokee. And then I knew like the different escape routes that if I'm getting chased, if I jump into this creek, take it down two, three miles, it's going to take me out on a whole nother side of the town. And so literally from like my entire 11 to 13, like the entire police department of that town knew who I was, knew my family. They could just never, ever catch me. And Man. so um, it was getting very, very bad. And, and my dad just felt like, you know, it's like, yo, like, you know, St. Louis is just not, um, a good place for him to be right now, you know? And um, so I had a probation officer named Troy Donaldson. I had a probation officer at 13 years old. Uh, his name was Troy Donaldson. He was a black man. He, you know, saw firsthand how like, you know, black kids' lives were being ruined by just being out in the streets and, you know, being touched by different elements. And so um, one day he had called me. I got into a fight at school because I, I, I was trying to sell some weed to somebody in the bathroom. And then somebody, I guess, was trying to, I don't know, interrupt it or do something. We ended up getting into a fight. I ended up getting suspended. And then that same day when I got suspended, my uh, probation officer had called and said that the police department are looking for me in connection to a crime that had happened and that they know I did it but I was a minor. So he said, come, come to his office. He wanted to talk to me. So I came with him, my mom and my dad. We sat down in his office at the city hall and he was telling me that, you know, like they want to send you to Boys Town. Boys Town was the name of some juvenile prison where you go to do like, you know, a year or two years or whatever. And he said that when they call him back, that he's going to tell them that I've already left the state of Missouri with my father and I'm going to New Jersey. They literally called while we were right there in the office. Right there. And they called and he said, yeah, Tosin's not in Missouri anymore. He, his father came and got him and he's in New Jersey now. 
And so since I was a minor, I'm not really sure what the laws were, but since I was a minor, it was like, okay, they they had to like close the case or something like that or something like that. So it's like, yo, if you get out the state, you're a minor, like this can all go away. And so my dad was like, okay, yeah, we're not just going to New Jersey. We take you out the country. And so um, I was in New Jersey for about a month and then I left America January 4th, year 2000. I'll never forget it. January 4th, year 2000. Four days after the whole little Y2K thing happened, of which I played a, I played a prank on my pops. He, he was in IT, so he knew the lights wasn't go off. So I'm downstairs in the basement by the power thing, and as soon as it got to zero, I just cut the whole lights off. <laughs> and he knew it was me. He was like, Tozen! He just, <laughs> all the neighbor's lights are still on, but our house, <laughs> he was in. But yeah, so I left January 4th, year, year 2000, to go to England. And uh, I was in a boarding school in Reading, Southeast England. And uh, just being there, man, being around people from all over the world whose parents sent them to school there. Because one thing I saw is that education is like a valuable resource. If you don't have it where you're at, you go seek it, you go look for it. And so what I saw is that a lot of wealthy people they could be from Australia, or they could be from Brazil, or they could be from the States. When it comes to education, they're gonna send their kids to go get schooled in wherever country has the best education. Because if you don't have the best education on the South side of wherever you at, and you can afford to whether take a loan or scrounge up the money, you, you gonna send your kids to where they can get it. So I was just around a lot of people that was from different countries, from Morocco, Australia, a lot was from Europe. And just like seeing the things that they talked about, they cared about the things that were fun to them as being, you know, 14, 15 year old kids. It was like a different trajectory, you know, like when I was in America, my freshman year, cause I left, I left America like my first three months of my freshman year of high school. So what was cool in junior high and high school when I was here, you was the coolest person if you had the freshest clothes, if you got all the girls, uh, if you played sports, you know what I'm saying? If you was, if you was cool. What makes you cool over there is who's smartest. Like whoever's passing the test, whoever's getting all A's, whoever's like doing what, that's who the girls flock to, whoever's smart. And so that just changed my whole thing because now you're not even trying to be fresh. You're not trying to be the most athletic. You're trying to figure out how do you be a thinker? How does your mind become something that's amazing? And that's going to make all the girls come to you. (laughs) So being in that environment, for five and a half years, when I came back in, in 20 and came back to, you know, America and was going to college here, you know, I wasn't a freshman in college trying to, you know, be at all the parties or trying to stunt. I still went, but I was like, yo, that's why I started throwing parties and charging people to come into them. So mm-hmm. I'll still be at the parties, but it's going to be a $5 cover. It's going to be a $10 cover. I had to pay the DJ 200 bucks. I had to pay the spot 450. So as soon as I make 650 to 700 bucks, that's a profit. Now I can start drinking and having fun and kicking with everybody because I've covered, you know, I broke, I broke even. It's not anything after is profit. So I still kicked it. I threw some of the biggest parties you've ever seen, you know what I'm saying? In, in the Illinois, uh, East St. Louis, St. Louis area back when I was 20 from like 20 to 22. But it was never as a, just consumer going to spend money. It's like, we had to be behind it, you know? And then um, when I joined, I joined the fraternity in 2006, uh, like the end of my freshman year of college. And I used to see that it was step shows every year and like 2000 people would come to the step shows. And I'm like, 
and they're paying the university $20 to come into the auditorium. We don't get none of that money. So we like, hold on, 2,000 times 20. We like, that's, that's 40K. How much did they give us? Zero. And, and how long has this thing been going on? Since all the years fraternity's been at this school? So for the last 40, 50 years, they make 40K off of our step shows and we don't get nothing? So we was like, yo, bet, we gonna talk to all the orgs, the alphas, the Qs, the deltas. We gonna be like, look, we still gonna do the step show on campus, but we gonna take the after party off campus somewhere else. So we went to Blackman's Plaza in East St. Louis. When the school saw we were throwing our own after party, they were like, no, you guys can't do that. We was like, yes, we can. Like they literally tried to fight us and tell us, no, you can't do that. It has to be on campus. We was like, nope. So we went and paid Blackman's Plaza, I think $2,000. That spot could hold like 1,500 people. And then um, after the step show, we said, yo, the after party, because MySpace was the thing then. So we, we was promoting it on MySpace. We had over 3,000 people lined up to get into the, uh, to, the, to the step show after party. Everybody couldn't get in. We were charging people 40, 40 bucks. We made $30,000 that night as 21, 22-year-old kids in college that are just part of Greek or, or organizations. And we split it equally amongst all the organizations that was active on campus. Because we didn't have all of, the, all of the divine nine. I think it was only like four or five orgs that was active at that time. And we split that 30K equally. Man, I love it. Damn, I love it. He did supposed to do, Jared. Huh? <laughs> he yeah, did so the shit we were supposed to do. You gonna be Brad, exactly. Be the bag we fumbled, he made it. Yeah, <laughs> Wait, so question. I, I'm sorry, just side question, but I gotta ask. What fraternity you in? Yeah, man, I gotta know too. Iota Phi Theta. For real? Oh, uh, we both alphas, me and Jared. <laughs> I know a lot of your brothers, man. I've been friends with a lot of your brothers going on 14, 15 years, man. Uh, that's cool, man. That's so that's, that's cool. dope, bro. Uh, I was head of a uh, of our step show too, so I definitely resonate with what you're saying. But like, yeah, like my chapter, they were smart enough to say, "Hey, we're gonna have our own damn step show too." So, but that's that, that's really cool. I like how y'all y'all did that, and y'all realized that, like, by the fact that y'all didn't have any ownership over the show, y'all didn't have any ownership over the party, y'all weren't getting any of the profits. But once y'all realized that y'all could take it elsewhere and y'all could go and do something that y'all actually had control over. That was when y'all got to see the profit of it. Y'all got to see the, the fruits of your actual labor. It was just that quick. A lot yeah. of people, we're the ones that have the talent. We're the ones that have the creativity. So mm-hmm. was just take it elsewhere. And instantly, the power and control is gone from whoever, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it's just having, you know, the courage to say, okay, let's just give it a try. You know, let's give it a try. You know what I'm saying? And that kind of reminds me of, like, the music industry, like how – people do to artists like they're the ones writing the music they're the ones coming up with the lyrics you got the producers coming up with the songs and the instrumentals but they're getting paid the least amount because they're being funneled through this record label who's so set they're just they're gonna give them an upfront yeah they're gonna give them an upfront but in the back end they making all the money like all the money so I like how y'all y'all flipped the script on their ass. Y'all said, nah, fuck that. We're going to make us 30K. They were so mad to this day when they hear, like, my name or anybody's name that was with us in that chapter. Another one of my bros named Corey McClure. He was, he was a little older. He was, like, six years older than me, but he had came back to finish his degree. And, like, we, we, we were straight trying to take control and make money off of everything. And they just didn't like that because they was like, yo, like, these dudes are actually smart. Like they're actually like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? All the extracurricular stuff 
which which is bringing them a lot of money that they use to do all types of stuff all over the campus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we're the ones generating it. And we was like, no more. We're like, we not throwing no more parties on campus. We're not doing nothing on campus to where we can't charge. Yeah. If we ain't making a profit, we doing all the work. Yeah. You know, and, and we realized that the talent, people going to go wherever the talent is. People going to go wherever the party at. Yep. So we the party two miles off campus. If there's no party on campus, guess what? Everybody's leaving campus that night to go to where it's at. Mm-hmm. So if you got a good quality product, people are going to go or pay for wherever that's at. You know what I'm saying? And so that was something we had realized early on. And, you know, I took that same principles to every, you know, when I transferred to Kane University in New Jersey, you know, I, 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 I broke that down to the bros as well and said, hey, we are an incorporation. This is not just a fraternity where we just jumping around. We are incorporated. That means we are a business. That means we should be generating income. So yeah. we went that, you know, our um, EIN number, opened up a business bank account, and started to function our chapter like a business, as well as, you know, doing stuff for the community as we always did, you know, giving out cots and, you know, home for the homeless programs and stuff like that. But, you know, if we're giving out free food, who's going to pay for this? Exactly. Like, you got to bring – and then a lot of people on the college level, a lot of the – the uh, student body or whatever, they don't see it as, oh man, they got to come up with this. They just like, hey, they giving free stuff. The Q's over here got free barbecue chicken. The Alphas over here got free punch. Like, they don't look at it as like, oh man, they got to come up with this. Because I know whenever I first got in, a lot of times we was we was taking money out of our own pocket. And then, mm-hmm. then like you said, I was like, nah, bro, like, we got, there's got to be a way where we can, we can fund this. Like, it shouldn't be where we got to, pull up this money because this is like you said this is a business so yeah. let's make some money sure so Tosa, man i do want to switch gears a little bit with you sure. and I, I so like you're making your money you because I, I feel like we still steadily moving yeah. down the timeline of your life so you're yeah. making your money as in the college you're doing the parties you're doing all that i wonder what took you to real estate so i had always been in real estate uh, had always no. I had always been interested in real estate since before college. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just hadn't, I guess, found the right. It's kind of like when you're playing double dutch. You got to wait for the right time to jump in. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just hadn't found the right time to like. Okay, I can get in now because at that time I was still learning stuff. I was still getting like tricked by all these like uh, real estate programs buy houses for pennies on the dollar and make you think that you, you could buy a house for like a dollar and then you get, you know, you buy the CDs and the, the little big pamphlet and it's just basically telling you that you can go down to your city and bid for properties, but that don't mean you're going to be able to get a property for a hundred dollars. No. It was like a lot of the programs that were out then because real estate was so unregulated between 2000 and 2007 there was just like straight, there was people that were just lying, that were just like, you know, frauding people to get you to buy a program. It was like, if you think it's crazy now, then it was ridiculous. Hmm. I just didn't feel like I was getting the right information to be able to play at the level I wanted to play. I just had my mom's example, which was cool, but she never left single family residential investments. She only bought small houses in the hood that she could get cheap, fix them up and rent them out. She didn't deviate from that game plan. She never changed it. And so I didn't necessarily want to own eight, nine, ten single-family houses. That's not what I wanted to do. You know, I always wanted to own apartment buildings. 
like always. And so it was just like, at that time, I didn't know anybody who was buying apartment buildings. I didn't have any course or any mentor that could show me how to do it. And so I was just really just, uh, just trying to stay active and at least being able to make some money or, or just learn business principles in other industries and in other ways, and then just wait for the right time when it was time for me to actually, you know, figure out what the real estate thing really was as far as the level I wanted to operate at. So that took uh, a few years, man. It, it wasn't something that just happened and, you know, overnight, it, it took a while. So in those, in those few years, I, I had a quick question in those few years, how did you get prepared? Cause I know that some of our followers, like they're probably in that position right now where it's like, I'm interested in real estate. Mm-hmm. I know I want to jump in. I know like I, I want to get to that point where you are right now, but like, what do I do in that meantime of preparation of getting ready? Like, how do I get ready to jump in? So the way I did then, now, now, now this is what I did, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I would just go look at houses. You know, I'd go on the real estate websites where houses were for sale and I'd go to open houses and I would just go. I would just go and I would see what, you know, the realtors were telling the people that actually were trying to buy houses for their families. And just, I was just, just getting familiar with the environment. If you're going to be good in anything, before you become an expert at it, you got to get, just get familiar with the environment. You just got to know how, how people actually even behave and how they talk and how they play within these confines. So, you know, I, I, was, I was good for driving down the street. I got something to do. I see open house. Skirt! All right, we're going to pull up. We're just going to go in there and, you know, just see something. I wasn't, I'm not going to sit here and make it seem like I was, you know, asking a ton of questions and I just had these philosophical questions. Like, no, I was just looking. I didn't even know what questions to ask. I didn't know what I should even be looking for. So I just wanted to see it. I've always been a very um, visual person. If I see something and I see it enough times, I can put it together. Mm-hmm. So if I'm around something a long, for a long enough time, I can figure it out without you even ever having to teach me or bring me on as a mentor, as, as a men- mentee or whatever. So that was what I did. And then um, if we fast forward, I moved to New Jersey. Uh, this is 2000. 9, 2010-ish, uh, I had saved up $10,000. And I was like, you know what? This is a down payment on a property. So I remember putting on Facebook, uh, do any of my friends in New Jersey uh, know anybody who invests in real estate? And then this girl named Aisha Rodriguez, who was in like, you know, I, I think she was in like our college circle. I didn't really know her personally, but I knew of her enough that we were friends on Facebook or whatever. And she was like, yeah, um, I'm an assistant for somebody who does real estate at a high level. So I'm like, okay, cool. Can you set up a meeting? She said, yeah. So like a week later, gentleman pulls up to my house. He's in a, a, a blue BMW on 22s. Uh, he hop out. He got a chinchilla on and some Tim's. Oh, shit. He's like, hey, he's like, hey how you doing? My name is Jay Morrison. I'm like, I'm like how, how you doing, man? My name is Tosin. You know, Aisha was his assistant. So we go in my house. He sits down on my couch. And I tell him, I say, I got $10,000. Um, I'm trying to buy some real estate. And he's like, okay, so if you're going to get a mortgage, keep in mind, this is 2010. This is after the crash happened. So now there's like regulation now. Yeah. But 2010, we're two years after the crash. Prices were still dirt cheap. Cheap as fuck. It was crazy. So that $10,000 down payment could have knocked out like 20% or 25% of the entire cost of the house at that time. And so uh, he basically said, so you got to have, you know, two years of tax returns, which I didn't have. I never filed taxes. So I was like, yeah, I don't have that. 
Then he's like, you got to have a credit score of at least a 620 because in New Jersey, it's a bit higher or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, I don't even know my credit score. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So the only thing I got is 10 grand. So he's like, yeah, man, like, you know, you have to find out where you stand with, with, with the others. But if you're going to get a mortgage, you need those tax returns and you need at least two years. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, so I got to wait two years so I can actually get either W-2 income or 1099 income. So from what I knew and understood at that particular time, I couldn't buy a house in 2010. I couldn't buy anything in 2010. So I just thanked him for his time. I said, hey, man, thank you for coming by. I appreciate you. We shook hands, and that was it. Never saw him again until three and a half years later. That's crazy that he just pulled up on you like that, though, man. I mean, at that time, you know, Jay is not the Jay that you know now that has built this huge company as a big personality. Mm -hmm. In 2010, he was a gentleman a, a, a person who had just got out of prison five years early and was in the building stage of trying to turn his life around and build an honest, true, real business. So he was, I met, I met him when he was in the grind, when he was trying to beat the statistic of once you go to prison, you'll never be anything. And he was like, no. And he was, he was like, nah, I'm, I'm going to do this. And that was just at the time where he was still, you know, he's only five years into his journey. You know, this is a guy who's got, I think 18 years of real estate experience now. Yeah. Then he was only five years into his journey. So he wasn't even uh, uh, close to touching the success that he was able to reap the, see the results from. I think two, three years later, he was able to see the results of the prior 10 years of him busting his ass off and, 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 and just building an honest business on, on, on integrity, learning how to do things the right way actually becoming in if you talk to jay about finances he's a nerd like forget all that swaggy stuff how he seems <laughs> when he talks numbers he's a nerd you'd be like you'd be like no this dude is this he's a finance guy like this is not some dude off the street anymore yeah he's a finance guy like he and, and it's crazy like he had to actually dedicate time and energy yeah to build that to learn and so that's, I think, what, you know, happened to me as well. Like, it took years to operate at that high level. That's not something that happens in 18 months of going hard. No. It's 10 years of being all over the place, <laughs> trying this business, trying that business. People don't know Jay used to have a school uniform business. He used to have a record label, and he had an artist. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> if, if, I'm not sure if you guys know Emery. Uh, Jay-Z's right-hand man, that's Jay's mentor. Wow. And it was, so Jay's whole plan was, I'm going to start this label. I got the relationship with Emery. We're going to get him buzzing in the streets, and then I'm going to bring him over to Rockefeller. That was what Jay wanted to do. But Emery told Jay, he's like, man, the music business is not for you, man. I hear on the street, I hear that you that real estate is what you know. I hear that real estate is what you're good at. You need to focus on that. You need to be the man in that. And that's when he dropped everything else and said, okay, real estate. And so similar to me, I was in a whole bunch of businesses. You know, my my first real business that was incorporated, um, the eBay selling business, that wasn't the LLC. That was just me hustling on the internet. Mm. The first incorporated business that I started was called Exotic Sports Car Rentals to where I was going to buy Corvettes, Lamborghinis, Ferraris, and rent them out to people that wanted to like shoot music videos, that wanted to just have a you know a fancy car to drive around while they're in town. That was my initial first business, of which failed woefully because I had no idea the amount of capital that is needed. I was just thinking that. 
to maintain a fleet of two hundred and three hundred thousand dollar cars. Yeah. Oil changes on them things are two grand. Yeah. Mm. Let a rim get dented up because a renter messed it up. Even if you have, have insurance, your deductible might be like a thousand dollars. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, light go out on you. <laughs> Man, so it was just like there was no way in the beginning stages I could have had enough capital to sustain that. Yeah. Uh, it, it, and so I literally didn't even last. I think I lasted about six months. And it, you know, it was it was <laughs> it was it was an amazing experience, but it didn't feel good at the time. <laughs> it was no wasted experience either. Like, no, it, it wasn't wasted, but it just it it didn't feel good at all, man. Because it was like, you know, lost a lot of money. Um, didn't really even really get to get off the ground. Um, there was an Asian guy that I met in Brooklyn that was supposed to be a partner, and he was supposed to put a whole bunch of cash into the business to invest into me. And because I didn't have anything copyrighted or trademarked and I didn't have any non-disclosure agreements, he stole like my best ideas and then stopped answering my phone calls. And, and it was just like, I learned the craziest lessons at a time when I wasn't physically or mentally or emotionally strong enough to deal with this. Like it was, it was like a depressing time. It was like, they just took everything from me and I can't fight. I have no money to hire a lawyer. Like I, can't do nothing. I, I just got to keep it moving. <laughs> like, and so it was more of like, it wasn't really even the money invested that I lost. It was more of like the, the mental and emotional stress that I went through feeling like, man, somebody just hold me. You feel me? Somebody just, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, like you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so that, yeah, they messed you over. that was the hardest part. So I was like, okay, now when you go into business, you got to keep in mind how much capital do you need to enter? How much capital do you need to sustain? You know, and you have to have what's called a cash flow forecast, which you say, okay, I'm not going to turn a profit for 18 months. So I need two years worth of expenses so that throughout that time when I'm building my customer base and I'm branding and, you know, I'm learning what I have to learn, I can still function. I can still pay all my expenses. I, I may not make, make, make a profit but I can still be in business. And that's something that I, I had no idea. I went in with not even a month worth, worth, worth of expenses. <laughs> you know, I was, I was trying to run a business doing like pay as you go. Yeah. <laughs> and you can't do it that way. That's so I paycheck to paycheck type yeah. mentality. And then still in college, man, still in college full time. And, uh, you know, still trying to, not that I, I, I was depending on my degree to get anywhere, but I always felt that, it's a tool in your arsenal. Some people don't care if you have a degree and you're in business. Some people do. So being that I'm a young black dude trying to do business at a, at a high level, I'm probably going to see some pushback. So for the people that do care about you having a, 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 a degree or whatever, hey, I got that too. I got it. Like, yeah. Got it. For Here's the people who don't, then no harm, no fail. Yeah. So it was really just about trying to say, what can I get just so that no matter what environment I'm in, Whatever happens, I can still come credible to whatever that person's perception is. Because all businesses is perception. There are people that will look at you with that hat on and think you don't know nothing about nothing, but you can have a million dollar ideas. So I was like, okay, I can play that game. I'm a chameleon. Any way I need to look in any type of environment, I can adapt. I went to school. I grew up in St. Louis and Chicago. I lived in New Jersey. I went to school in Europe, Africa. I went to seven African countries before I was 19. I know how to look and talk and blend in with anywhere I'm at in the world. I know how to do this. 
So coming back to America, this is cheese. This is a piece of cake trying to get somebody to look at me and, and believe what I'm saying. You feel me? So, I, you know, even to this day, I, I still, um, you know, there's things that I'll do not because I need them, but just because it's just another tool in my arsenal. And so I think that people need to be aware of that. And, you know, code switching is, I think it's a tool. It's a gift. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's, you know, it's a gift. <clears throat> you know what I'm saying? And so knowing how to code switch, just not with the way you talk, but with the, with the way an environment looks to get what you need to get. And then when you got what you got, you go back to being who you really are. It's business. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, <laughs> that, 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 that's why. And, and, yeah, that's why a lot of companies like Coca-Cola and Pepsi, depending what country you're at, they have a totally mm-hmm. different look and brand message yeah. and image, sometimes even slogan, depending where in the world you are. Right. You feel right. So we that's- need to do that same thing on just the level that we're at. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. You, know? you got to brand yourself accordingly. Yeah. Right. Damn, man. I, I definitely like how you touched on, like, having tools in your arsenals, too, because, like, even if you are a business person and you don't learn the process, you just hire and outsource people to do stuff for you. Now, if something goes on with that person and they're not able to do that job anymore, what's going to happen to your business? Mm-hmm. You're not going to know how to do it because yeah. you don't have that tool in your arsenal. So, like you said, you need to be able to know how to do multiple things and know how to talk to different people. Because if your accountant is out one day, but all you do, you just know how to facilitate. You should still be able to say, okay, let me go talk to another accountant and see what's going on. I at least know the basics of what is comprised on the balance sheet, what's comprised on the income statement. Thanks. Correct. Uh, another thing with that, which I think is just everybody should do, is that just a perfect example the first piece of property I bought uh, for development was in uh, Newark, New Jersey. It was just a piece of land and I was going to build um, a two family home on it. Um, being that I had never built anything from the ground up before, um, I seen my mom do it a million times, but that was in St. Louis, Missouri, different market, labor costs are different, materials are different. So it's not the same. Right. So in New Jersey, what I saw was that I got a ton of quotes from different electricians, contractors, everybody. They were telling me, yeah, it's going to cost you about, you know, 180, 200,000 to build this multifamily home. I'm like, oh, that's not that bad. That's cheaper than buying a multifamily home that's already established. So I'm like, man, if I was to buy something that's already built, I'd spend like 270, 280. So to build it, I'm saving 80 grand. I'm like, oh, that's amazing. Until... I spoke to the people who I bought the property from because I did a deal with the city of Newark and I bought land from them. They gave me some land at a great price. I can't disclose it, but they gave me land at a great price. So they were along the way because they really wanted to see me succeed. They were like, yo, you're a young, you know, black man trying to get into real estate. When, if you develop different parts of our city, it's going to make our city look more beautiful. You know, we'll get tax revenue from it now. So they really wanted me to be successful. So when I was telling them the quotes I got, the city of Newark, their zoning department and building department is saying, no, that's not right, Tosin. You can build that, with which the plans that we approve for you, you can build that for 140,000. They told you 200? So now I'm thinking like, 
they was about to get me for six grand and I wouldn't have loved And so I always tell my coaching clients and on the mentorship calls, I always tell people, I can sell you a Toyota for a Mercedes Benz cost if you don't know how much a Toyota costs. Mm. So you know your numbers. You need to go to Home Depot and Lowe's for no reason and just walk down the aisles and just look at stuff. You don't got to buy nothing. Just walk down the aisles and see how much hardwood floors cost. See how much baseboard costs. See how much water heaters cost. And whether it's a 75-gallon water heater or a 50-gallon water heater. If it's laminate hardwood floor or true wood hardwood floor. Like, you have to know the cost. Because if you don't, somebody will get over on you and you will not know. And even yet, you may even think you're getting a great deal. Dang. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so it's learning things like that. And then, you know, dealing with contractors, you give them a deposit, then they stop answering your phone. And a receipt, you can't can't assume to get that money back because there's no record you even gave them that $5,000. Sheesh. So these are all the things that I learned in the beginning by trying to move so fast and just trying to be a hustler and not trying to be a legitimate businessman. Mm. I think in our community, we get so caught up with grinding and hustling and making the plays that we overlook a certain due diligence that protects you with every notch that you escalate. And I've, I made that mistake. I made that mistake. Like I was trying to hustle and grind and get houses built and wholesale and, and do all this. And I wasn't necessarily looking at, okay, do you even have clauses in your wholesale contract that protect you if you can't find a buyer? Do you have clauses that say you don't have to put earnest money down or if you do put earnest money down, it's refundable if you can't close the deal? Like these are things that I wasn't even thinking because I'm just so stuck on trying to get a deal done. Right, right. Damn. Hey. That, that was some gems yeah, right there. I'm just saying. Because yeah. it's, it's, it's preparation and I mean, it's working the preparation, you know, getting ready to, to do that leveling up and getting ready to be at those higher levels. You got to be able to prepare and know that, know, have the education so that you, when you get to those levels, you already know what you're doing. Like what he said, that makes, it makes a lot of sense, make a world of sense. But yeah. I did, I kind of wanted to ask a, a, a question kind of to make sure that we, we fill in the, the followers in as far as the story, how it goes. So we, we covered college. We covered childhood. So you had this conversation with Jay Morrison and how, what, what, what's the next step from there? Where are we going? How do, cause I heard you say something about wholesaling. Uh, I know we got into our first deal. So like, how, how do I get from confusion and trying to figure things out, had this conversation to get into the goal? Gotcha. So um, I started uh, wholesaling before. Um, I started working with Jay before I even kind of linked back up with him. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had built my buyer's list. I was using Craigslist. I was finding all the investors on there and, you know, I, I would take them out to lunch or I'd take them out to coffee and I'd pay for their coffee. Keep in mind, I was broke. I didn't have any money. So that's the only reason why I could only take you to coffee because all I can afford is this $4 latte. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> hey, that's real though. <laughs> yeah. And so I would just ask them like, what type of properties are they looking for? what uh what markets what returns are they looking for etc cetera, etc cetera. and i was just trying to like reverse engineer it from there what's good y'all it's Aaliyah from the young and dumb show i have something for you if you're young and interested in learning more about different careers becoming an entrepreneur and really get into the bag then be sure to check out and subscribe to the young and dumb show on this show we sit down with the biggest and i'm talking the biggest career professionals entrepreneurs influencers 
and entertainers to break down how to be successful in different industries. It's brought to you exclusively by the Revolt Podcast Network, anchored in hip-hop, powered by creators. Let's get it, y'all. And then um, I was watching um, NBC's Open House once. So it, it was a TV show on NBC where they have a realtor showing like luxury properties to like artists and entertainers and, and they'll showcase like, you know, luxury houses in the areas and stuff, right? Specifically like the New Jersey, New, New, New York area. So one day I'm watching that, somebody come on the screen and it says Jay Morrison. And I look at this dude, I'm like, that name sounds kind of familiar. I'm like, that name... <laughs> I'm like, and I'm thinking like that name sounds because keep in mind this is NBC now. He ain't got the chinchilla and the Tims no more. (laughs) (laughs) Three piece suit looking, and I'm like, like yo, I think that's that guy, man. I think that's that guy because all the properties he was showing were in New Jersey. So I'm like, yo, I think that's that guy, man. And then that was when I googled him and saw that oh, he's got something called the Jay Morrison Academy now where they teach real estate investing. I'm like, oh, snap. Okay, you know what? Let me join this. So I joined it, $99 a month. There was only one course at that time. It was the real estate, uh, no, the residential real estate investment course, which just focused on how to wholesale, how to flip property, and how to buy multifamily property. That was the only course. So I joined that, joined that, and um, literally I had a, um, an attic. It wasn't even an attic apartment. It was an attic I was renting out from somebody. But $500 a month, I had no furniture. Um, the only thing I had was a couch, but it was his couch. He just let me keep it up there. And at night when I would go to sleep, I would take the couch cushions out, put them on the floor, put a bed sheet over it, and that was my bed. I've and been so, there before, my brother. I ain't gonna lie to you. Yep. And so the one thing that he did say, he's like, yo, here's the Wi-Fi password. So I had Wi-Fi. So I was on YouTube every single day looking at different real estate investors like Phil Pustiowski, who used to always talk about wholesaling and all these other people. And then I'd be in the academy and I'd be, I'd be looking at those lessons and studying those lessons over and over and over and over again while I was actually going out in the field and trying these things. I never just sat behind a computer and just watched a whole bunch of videos and didn't try, try none. If I saw a lesson on how to build a buyer's list, I was going out the next day and doing that. I was actually taking the information and going and trying it. Mm. And so, um, that mixed with the experience and the, and the footwork and the legwork I had already done kind of helped me connect the dots with my first investor uh, named Edgar Montalvo, who we are literally like family now. He literally just, I literally just spoke to him yesterday and he's an Argentinian investor. Um, he made a lot of money in a business that he owned, but was kind of new to real estate. But him being Hispanic, like a lot of people in his family were in construction, so he knew he could get labor costs like really cheap. So he's like, hey, you know, I want to find a deal where I can make some money off of. And helped him find his first deal in Orange, New Jersey, um, found the deal for him, negotiated the deal for him, literally did everything for him. All he had to do was just bring that check. And we got that house for $42,000. It only needed 30000 in work. The ARV on that was one fifty. So he would have spent 72000 and the profit on that would have been like 60-something grand. Yeah. I had, you know, just built that rapport with him. And because I was going to Home Depot and Lowe's, and I worked in Home Depot for about three months because I said, I really want to know what this thing is. I actually went and got hired. 
this is how dedicated you got to be to the game. If you're going to play the game, you got to really play it. You got to really play it. So, you know, um, I worked in the garden department of Home Depot, so I knew how much grass seed costs, how much sod cost, you know, how much the hedges and the bushes cost when you're doing landscaping. You know, I knew how much, you know, the interior doors cost, all that stuff. So anytime he would say that his cousins or whatever quoted a price for whatever, I would say, yeah, sounds about right. Or I'd be like, no, that's too much. So he ended up going back to Argentina for like three months to like visit family. And he left me to project manage the whole job. And so it was him letting me do that and giving me that stamp of approval, basically being his project manager. I was able to use that to garner other investors to let me take over the job site because I could tell them, look what I did. Even though it wasn't my deal and I only made a couple grand on the wholesale fee, but I can say, hey, I did this rehab. Like I did this. I supervised the team. I supervised the materials, the construction schedule, getting the permits from the city of Orange. Like I project managed this whole thing. I did this. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Dope. And so I was able to use that to kind of just build credibility with all the other investors in New Jersey. And I was able to build an investors list very, very big and very large. And it just became easier to do deals because credibility is what's going to make it easy. If you don't, even if you don't know what you're doing, but you're credible, you can get more done than somebody who knows what they're doing, but has no credibility. Ah, man, that's, that's so cool. It's perception. It's all perception. The reason, why, the reason why a Gucci bag is $500 and a Levi's bag is 26 bucks is because we perceive that the Gucci is higher. It could be made of the same material. Mm -hmm. But Gucci put a lot of time and energy into building credibility as being a luxury brand. You as a business owner need to put time and energy, not just in learning your craft, but also in building your perception of being somebody who is worthy of what you're making them pay you for, mm. you know, and that's a huge, huge thing that I think I learned on accident. I wasn't trying to learn that. It was just something that I realized, Oh snap, like this is how you can get more business done is if people see your scope of work, if people, you know, can ask contractors all around the city about you and only get good, you know, things said about you. You know, to this day, anybody in North Jersey, Essex County, Burton County, you mention my name, there is nobody that can say anything negative about me. I never screwed nobody on a deal. I've always been straightforward and with integrity. If I'm looking at this deal for me or if I'm looking at this deal for my investor, I'm going to tell you. You know, and so it's like I have a great, great, great reputation. And so that has made a lot of deals fall into my lap to where even to this day that I'm in Atlanta, people still text me and ask me to find them property, still thinking I'm in New Jersey and I haven't been there in two years. Man. But like you said, <laughs> that, that comes with moving with moving with intent and moving with purpose too, though, man. Like, you got to be intentional about what you're doing. Like you said, you, you took them three months. You said, okay, I'm going to go to Home Depot. Let me figure out how much all this material is. I'll ring it up on a daily or you might be the person on the forklift like moving it and stuff. So I'm looking at this every day. I know how much, if I see a contractor coming in, they tell me they need 37 square foot, 3,700 square foot of hardwood floors. Now I know if I'm working with a contractor or whatever, you got 2,500 square feet, it shouldn't cost you X exactly. amount of dollars. Right. It's a ballpark. You may not know exactly, but you can know when something doesn't sound right. Yeah. Right. 
Right. People that cost sixty k to rehab a two thousand square foot house, you'd be like, mm, yeah, nah. Nah. <laughs> that don't really sound right. And so it, it kind of just puts you in a in a situation to where you know you're just more informed. And um, that that really really helped me a lot because since I was in a space where nobody really was gonna necessarily take me on and show me the game, trial and error was the only way I was gonna learn. But kind of mm-hmm. weaving myself into the fabric of real estate, it cut my trial and error pains down a lot. You know, like working at Home Depot, that literally, with exception to building a house, which I still didn't know how much that cost. But with exception to like rehab costs and renovation costs and stuff, a contractor couldn't, you just can't get over on me, like ever. Because I, I know it doesn't cost, I know it doesn't cost that much. Especially not for materials, you know, so like, Water heaters, you can get 50-gallon water heaters for 500 bucks. If you got a rebate or you're trading one in, you can get them for 350 375 But a contractor is going to charge you okay. 13 1400 bucks for a water heater and then throw like another 1000 or 2000 on for labor. Yep. So it's like, no, I'll buy the water heater and I'll just pay you to put it in. How about we do that? Right. <laughs> you know, so it allows you to, to kind of know better ways to position yourself when you are going about doing deals and so, and so yeah so I started getting a lot of individual success on my own um I did learn a lot of things from the Jay Morrison Academy and and then you know seeing what Jay was doing and knowing what direction he wanted to go I told him I said what do you guys need man because they were, Jay Morrison Academy was still a beginning company at that time it was only like four people that were working there at that time and you know Jay was literally doing 80 percent of the work as far as teaching recording the videos stuff like that. So I was like, what do you guys need? And they told me that they need an intern, somebody to help with like the community events and, you know, um, you know, uh, keeping communication open with the people that are, you know, looking at us, you know what I'm saying? Like if you're a community organizer or a community organization, you got to be in communication with the community, but five people can't really do that effectively because how does five people keep in touch with a thousand people? It's hard. So that was something where we was like, okay, we need to build a team of people that like we can follow up and let our community know that we actually care about your progress and we're not just trying to get you to pay for a course or come to an event and then you never hear from us again. So I came in doing that for two years straight, didn't get paid a dollar, was putting in work though, because I knew if I showed my value to the JMA organization, that in exchange, I was going to see and learn a lot of things just by being around. Those first two years, Jay didn't directly teach me anything, like sit me down and say, hey, Tosin, this is how you do it. But he let me see and be around everything. So me being a visual person, I just got to see it and I can put it together. So I'm seeing how he's branding. I'm seeing how he's getting his deals done. I'm seeing I'm in the room and he's negotiating these multi-million dollar deals and ripping them apart. And I'm like, damn. I'm like, ooh. And I'm watching it. And then I was able to do it on my own <laughs> and so it wasn't until i think 20 2016 where i actually came on as uh doing sales uh myself and brandon wiggly we were actually the first uh of uh, physical like first people that you would that you could verbally speak to on the phone to buy a course or to get coaching so like me and brandon wiggly literally like mapped out the whole coaching framework back then <laughs> And, um, you know, it's just funny how things have grown from then to now we have, I think, over 20 salespeople, um, an amazing sales funnel, an amazing company that's grown great. 
And I'm just lucky and I'm glad that I was able to be a part of it in the beginning. And I've learned a lot from it. And then in 2016, I bought a sports bar in Manhattan in the East Village. And um, a lot of people don't know, Jay was my silent partner. But uh, he never, ever wanted to be recognized for it. He never wanted to shine. He didn't, he was just happy that somebody who was, you know, eager to learn was able to watch him do some stuff and then be able to replicate it. He was just happy to see that. He was just happy for you, you know? And, um, you know, he never, in that whole entire partnership when we had that, 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 that bar, he never asked for a dollar. He never got a dollar. He never wanted a dollar. So he did that for free, basically. <laughs> you know, it was really just giving me that credibility to say, hey, this is somebody who was a business owner. He came through the Jay Morrison Academy. He's a business, he knows what he's doing. He, he's, you want to do business with him? You're A-okay. That stamp of credibility. Yeah. Right. I love so it. I, I was, yeah, I was able to get that from a lot of people that I've worked with along the way. Edgar Montavo, my first investor, gave me a crazy stamp of credibility when it came to project managing real estate renovations. Jay gave me a crazy stamp of credibility when it came to getting into business that may be outside of real estate. You know, sports bar really has nothing to do with renting out stuff, but you know, him giving me that stamp of credibility and then all the other people that I've you know, been able to work with over the, over the years that have publicly, you know, given me the, the stamp of approval. And that's allowed me to really dive, like delve into what my talents are and show people what I actually do, which in actuality is business development. It's not just real estate. It's I, I develop businesses no matter what industry it's in. That's what my creativity is. You know, like me, me knowing I want to go in real estate and say, you know, I'm going to go fill out an application at Home Depot. That's so that when I start doing my own business, I know what my expenses will be. I can know when somebody's trying to charge me too much. That's business development at its core. And so I think that's really what, I actually do when you look down at it because you know all the strategies are copy and you can use them in any industry <laughs> you know so um and then you know fast forward later we had the idea of the Tulsa fund we did our initial research and of course spoke to other companies that were actually in that space to see how do you guys actually do it these were funds that have raised over 300 million dollars in a short period of time and and we said okay we see the basics of it, but we're going to do it in a different way. We're going to do it and focus towards the urban community where they're not seeing that $300 million in capital, you know, being influxed into, the, you know, those millions and millions are being put into Manhattan and, you know, downtown Miami and all these places. Baltimore Harbor and stuff like that. Mm. What if we took 10 million and put it into the south side of Detroit? Or, or, or the west side of St. Louis. Property's already cheap. You know, we could do it $20 million on the west side of St. Louis. We could damn near buy the whole, the whole city. Right. <laughs> With all that opportunity zones and all this stuff that they enacted, yeah. man. They got a, they, there's a lot of opportunities in these neighborhoods to really come up. For sure. Right. You know, so that, that's kind of how where we got to where we were. And, you know, um, few hours before the Tulsa fund, fund launch, we were all nervous because we were like, okay, we put in all this work. It's like, imagine you've been practicing and playing for the NFL and now this is the NFL game day. Yeah, you played 18 games already. You know you deserve to be here, but you're still nervous. You're like, yo, are we gonna win? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And then, you know, when we went live, we went live like two hours before when we actually wanted to go live. 
and I'm looking at the numbers and I'm like, yo, it's been two hours. We already raised 400 grand. I'm like, hold on. <laughs> this is, is this supposed to be like this. <laughs> and six hours later, we had 600,000. I go to sleep. I wake up the next morning. We cracked a million. I'm like, yo, we just raised a million dollars. 13 hours. <laughs> 48 hours later, we're at two and a half million. I'm like, I, I don't, I don't think it's supposed to happen like this, though. <laughs> Dang. We're at 10 million, and we're like, wow. Okay, this is what happens when you spend the time letting your audience know that you're credible. Mm-hmm. It's not because we're these big geniuses that know everything, that do everything right. It's because we showed our audience, our investors, that number one, we have integrity, that we have studied and prepared for this, and that even though it's our first time, we're ready. And when they believe that, and then when they now see the team, they see Jay, they see Tosin, they see Mashar, they see everyone that's on the team are people who have gone through their own battles to getting great and learning their particular field, and now they're together. It's like the dream team. So, yeah, people are going to take a chance on you. And so, but people don't take a chance on you unless you show them that you're worthy of them taking a chance on. And so I think that's the reason why that we were able to do that, to be the first African-American fund uh, African-American crowdfund to raise that much money that quickly. I think we may be the only crowdfund in the world that, ha- that has raised that much money quick in their opening time. There, there's other crowdfunds that have raised more than us, but as far as like raising it that quickly, I think we hold that record to be the only crowdfund in the world to ever raise capital that fast. And we are rookies. We're about and to the- call Guinnesses and get them on the phone right now. <laughs> we got to put that in the book. <laughs> Man, that that's, that's so exciting and so inspirational, though, man. Yeah, man. It's a lot of that in the story that I really, really like. Uh, one of the big, big things that I want to just touch on, because it's something that's so major, and it was a theme throughout the whole thing, was the uh, the willingness to put that work in, man. Mm-hmm. And that the work is how you created your credibility. That working without getting paid for it, let me say rather. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's the real hack that everybody – always wants to avoid but that's really how you find that mentor we spoke last week on well what episode 17 with Wes about mentorship and we need to promote a culture of it but a lot of the times when people want mentors they don't want to do what you did they don't want to take that extra step and go out of their way and be like oh man i helped this person that project manager job a lot of people who wholesale they look at that as now you're not being the investor you're being a, a, a employee an employee you're an employee for somebody but if you kill your ego and take that mindset away from it, you really can gain a lot of value because you're providing this person with value. So they're going to just let you learn the game. I always tell people it's impossible to be a boss without being an employee first. Mm. The employee is, is the one that's actually on the ground that's selling the clothes at the register. That's actually in the system. The boss is the one that oversees the system. So how are you going to be a good boss and know how to make this system run if you've never worked in it? Mm. trying to leapfrog from being you know coming off the street not knowing nothing and you're just going to go straight to boss and you and you was never a worker you're not going to build anything great and then number two anybody that ever does work for you is not going to really respect you because they know that you're telling them to do stuff that they that they didn't even want to do right that you didn't even do exactly yeah yeah that you didn't even do you telling me it's like you know so i've always looked at you know what i'm saying um I never looked at it as me being an employee. I think that's like the, the ego. I've never looked at it that way. I've looked at it like, yo, I'm going to learn what you do and then I'm going to do it better than you. Yeah. 
so no problem. Like, I think I get that from my mom. Cause like my mom, she started later in her life. She started a, um, a nursing home for mentally challenged adults. And I used to always tell her like, how did she excel in that? Cause she actually started building that into a, a bunch of different locations. And I actually left out a huge part of my beginning. I was actually managing those for her when she'd go out of the country. So I was managing these uh, nursing homes for mentally challenged adults. And so um, I learned a lot about that as far as managing employees and schedules and stuff like that. And she used to always tell me that when people look at me, they think I'm just this immigrant lady with an accent who doesn't know anything. And I play the role because now they never hide anything because they never think I'm going to be competition. And they think that I'm just this immigrant and she'll learn the whole business. Six months later, she going to start her own thing. And, and, and she's good for that. Like, she's good for that. She'll, she, if, whatever you look at her and think when you see her, she'll let you think that. Because she doesn't have that ego to need to show you and prove to you that, no, I'm actually a very smart, intelligent lady that has a PhD. Oh, you, yeah, you think I'm a stupid immigrant? Yeah, okay, cool. No problem. But the next time you turn the corner, you're going to be coming to my office for a damn interview. <laughs> my mom used to hire everybody in the hood that nobody would hire or that couldn't get hired. My mom was good for that. When she built her stuff up, she'd hire everybody on the block. You knew how to cut grass. She was hiring you to cut. She hired so many people, her businesses, and she kept her businesses in the, in the quote-unquote hood, in Pagedale and, you know, North, North County and stuff, right? And she would hire everybody that other mainstream corporations would never give you a chance. And she would pay people well. She'd be paying people $16, $17, $18 an hour and, and be giving them hours. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, like, you know, when she figured it out, when she got it together, she didn't just hoard it for her and her family members and her son. She also extended that off to people that she didn't even know from, you know, a can of paint. That if, but if you seem like a good person, she'll give you a shot. You can have a history. You can have, you know, maybe you've been to jail before. You've been to prison. She didn't care. Like, who are you now, though? Who are you today? Yeah, I need this done. Do it. If you can do it, okay, then we'll give you a shot. Abundance mindset. Abundance yeah. Mindset, man. And I think I think it's cool because it's like it's textbook how to come up and also how to come up and help your community. Because it's like if you don't have, uh, you know, a lot of people that like we have following us or that we have conversations with, you know, they're frustrated because they don't start out with advantages or stuff like that, you know, as far as getting ahead. And it's like a lot of people won't start it, start with these advantages. But the answer to it is what you did. Y'all got it like both of y'all had that willingness to put your pride aside and get low get into the projects, get into the stuff and then be willing to work for free. And that's the heck. And then boom, now you got the, the project manager experience. Now you got the investor uh, clients, you have the experience with that. And so boom, that propels you so much further. And then you turn around and like your mom, you can come back and put money in your own community, make money in your own community and then hire your own community. Like it's textbook beginning to end. Like, this is how you supposed to come up, ladies and gentlemen. This I'm is how we do it. I'm tell y'all one thing. When you hire people in your neighborhood or in your little, on your block or whatever, they become your personal neighborhood watch and security. <laughs> because they know Mrs. O is hiring everybody who's going to act right. Mm -hmm. Don't mess up the plug, please, people. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So ain't nobody breaking into her car. You know what I'm saying? Ain't nobody... 
doing anything to like, you know, uh, you know, litter around, around the property or whatever, they make sure that, you know, Hey, you know, make she's sure that care. she's taken care of. Like, so it's one of those things that like, it, it's, 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 it's kind of how you kind of insulate yourself from what people say are the dangers of having a business in the communities where we live. That's major, man. Major facts. I love it. Um, we're going to wrap up and get to our last section of the uh, podcast, my brother. Uh, we do a section called What's on Your Timeline. Okay. And basically, What's on Your Timeline just talks about anything you saw on any of your feeds. It don't matter if it's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, yeah. whatever. Just something that you saw that you want to talk about or something that you saw that impacted you and you want to yeah, impact want to other people. On, my yeah. brother. Gotcha. So yeah, yeah I project came across manager. a post. It's actually a post um uh that was from I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with Dana Chanel and Prince Donnell. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So um is basically it's kind of in tune with that, you know, we're building these businesses not so that we can just be rich and have money, but so that we can have financial problems not be the problems that we have to necessarily deal with. Because there's way more problems in this world than financial problems. Yeah. And so if you don't have money problems, you can focus on the problems that actually matter. So one day I'm gonna be, you know, 55 years old, 60 years old. I may have a daughter who's starting to like boys or something. I wanna be able to focus on my daughter <laughs> and, and be there during that time that she's, you know, me and my wife to be there during that time that she's going through a change and not be like, man, I gotta be in the office or I gotta be here. So one of my main goals for wanting to be this, this mogul or this millionaire is not so that I can like stun on people with look what, what I got, but because I know there's so many things in life that um, you wanna be able to focus on, like I'm talking about undivided attention focus. And if you're still living paycheck to paycheck or if you don't have any assets or if you're wondering how you're gonna pay your basic living expenses, you'll never be able to 100% focus on those things. And that's how we have, you know, kids being at home by themselves and getting into stuff. Or, you know, your daughter could be 16 now and you haven't really known who she was since she was 13. It's because you, your, your focus is, so, is somewhere else and you're not even seeing things that are happening right in front of you. You know, my older brother said something to me like five years ago. He's also in real estate as well. Uh, one of the top real estate agents in the entire St. Louis, Missouri. And he told me, he said, Tosin, man, when I wake up in the morning, I take my daughters to the school bus and see them off to school. When they come back on the school bus at three o'clock, I'm waiting for them. I'm at home because I don't got to go nowhere. Mm. He's like, I don't got to be at work. Because he owns a lot of property, multifamily, eight unit buildings, 10 unit buildings. And he's like, yo, like I literally am living with my family. Like I'm growing with my family. Like he's actually cool. there. And so I think that's different from, you know, kids go to school in the morning, but you don't get home till 6 p.m., 7 p.m. They got a good three, four hours by themselves at home. You don't know what's happening. Mm -hmm. You know, so I remember just hearing that from my brother and then just seeing some other posts that really kind of just keeps in perspective why we're doing this. Because, I mean, if you got $10 million and the next guy has $20 million, there's not really much that he has that you can't buy. Mm -hmm. Like the same Lamborghini, I can afford that too. Right. The same 20,000 square foot house. I, I mean, unless you're buying something that costs a whole 20 million, but I mean like, 
once you get to a certain amount of net worth and money, there's it now, now you're just doing it because you just want to make more money and tell people, but not because you need X amount to take care of your family. The guy that's got 1 billion and the guy that got, that has 2 billion, I'm telling you, they can afford the same stuff. They're living in the same house. They're driving the same car. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> they're taking the same vacations, <laughs> you know? And so just keep in perspective, man, just keep in perspective so that we don't let this thing, you know, turn us into money hungry, you know, uh, machines that just chase dollars and, and make that the most important focus of our entire lives and neglect everything else, which, which, which is also special and lovely, you know what I'm saying? And, and feels great. I think it's very important. Yes. I, I like that, that, man. That's why that's a renaissance, man. Yeah, man. That, that's like a that. renaissance, man, bro. A very gen genuine brother, man. Hey, once again, I appreciate you for reaching out to us, man. Yeah. And come and bless the podcast. Bless the community with these gems you just dropped, man. I appreciate like, you. Big thanks, man. Big thanks. All right. Anytime. And definitely, if there's anything I can do for you guys, let me know. Oh, oh yeah, most, man, most definitely, definitely, man. Most we definitely, definitely going to be in contact. Uh, and there's definitely some questions I got that I want to ask you too. And also, I like to I like to extend that same thing. I mean, you know, we 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 little people in the world here. Yeah, but you we can if we can add some value to you. We'll you help. Know. It ain't no such thing as little people. It be the little people that make the big people now want to hire you. Uh, -uh it ain't no such thing. <laughs> yeah. Man. yeah well. So, some bro, before we go, can you tell the people where they can find you? Like, what's a little bit more like? Yeah. Um, do all that. You can find me on Instagram, underscore, it's Tosin underscore Oduale. Uh, I'm working on my website right now. It'll be TosinOduale.com. It should be live in a few days. We're just getting a few things um, uh, uh, just taken care of. Um, yeah, I'm pretty active on social media. That's probably the best way to find me. And then you'll be able to see, branch out to all the other things I do. Uh, I do have a web series. It's on YouTube. It's called The Daily Hustle, where I basically just, just have cameras follow me around as I'm getting deals done and talking to other you know, entrepreneurs, and we've been able to do a lot of stuff. You see me analyzing properties, everything from mansions to, you know, fix and flips to, uh, you know, I, I speak to my tailor about how he started his business after going broke and going bankrupt. And so it, it's, 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 not, it's not a bubblegum business reality show. We get into some real things, and the cameras are like flies on the wall, and we, we rarely edit anything. So you, you see it raw and uncut. And so you get <laughs> out on... Um, on YouTube, we're on episode four. Episode five is going to be coming out shortly. Um, episode four was actually a Nipsey Hustle tribute. Yeah, so. Uh, yeah, episode five is going to be showcasing on Hope Wiseman. She's a 26 year old African. Bro, we've been trying to get Hope on the show. So if That's you know Hope, bro, Hope, plug us, us in yeah, and man. come yeah, holler at your boys. We try, to, we try to get on. That's my homegirl. She's going to be in episode five. We're going to go out to Maryland. She's going to show us the whole operation, and uh, hopefully we should be getting into business with her real soon. We've been talking about it for about a year and a half. And so, uh, you know, and if y'all yeah. don't know who Hope is, y'all need to look up. She's doing yeah. some great things in Maryland. Just Google Hope Wiseman. That's all you got. That's, that's all you need to do. <laughs> I promise you. Shout out to Hope. If you hear this, like we said, stop playing with us. It just come, 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 come bless us. Come bless the listeners real quick with this one. Wonderful, wonderful. All right, gentlemen, what well, I'm about to shake out. Me and my lady have to go out to dinner. So All right, I'll man. Hey. Appreciate you. Take right. it easy, man. Y'all have a good night, man. All right, so uh, we're going to just go ahead and wrap this thing up real quick. 
take care of a few housekeeping items, man. We appreciate Tosin for coming on. That was real. So dope, so, man. Like, I gained a lot from that. Pretty sure the IDs fellas can say the yeah, same. I, yeah, I <laughs> fucking information. We trying to do business with people, man. It's going to be lit. But uh, as always, everybody, we thank you for listening to the podcast. Please, please, please be sure to rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It helps the podcast spread and continue to grow and spread the message. Uh, if it's a podcast you like, share it on the story. Tell your friends about it. Tell your mom about it. Tell your uncle, auntie, anybody. Like you said, we're trying to help the podcast grow. And we're just trying to help spread the message to anybody we can. Any ears that's listening, open to listening to it. Right. And I and I also want to add to uh, y'all let us know. DM us. Um, we're going to be making some posts and stuff soon. Uh, let us know if you have any questions or anything that you've been trying to do with building your social media. Uh, we're going to be coming out with a course real soon and we want to make sure that the course is going to be able to cover everything that y'all might be interested in as far as how to grow your social media, how to monetize your social media and everything like that. So be looking out for that course coming soon. Uh, we just want some of your input on it as well so we can make sure we cover everything and make the best that we can for y'all. Well, uh, also make sure to check out the website. Uh, we got the Patreon up. It's the Proud to Pay campaign. That's where we're trying to, we're trying to pull up in people's cities more. We want to start making a real connections because people getting business done off Black Wolf Renaissance. So we know that if we get everybody all connected. our following base connected, we can really make some change in the community. So, yeah. That's, we'll go ahead that down in the show notes. Uh, anything else y'all got, fellas? Nah, man. Uh, we just thank y'all again for always rocking and listening to us, helping us continuously grow. We, we got, what, 22,000 listens now? So, hey, thank y'all. We appreciate it. Um, <laughs> this is just like, this is just half of the year already. So we got so much more planned for y'all. Um, and just keep on rocking with BWR. Also, go sign up for our emailing list because we're about to start putting a lot of stuff on our website. So if you want to learn about any type of blogs we got coming up, any type of new courses we got available, the newest merch that's coming out, maybe if you want to learn about the investment opportunity that's going to be popping off, uh, just sign up for the email and you'll get it directly to your phone. You go wake up and like, hey, BWR talking. And y'all don't y'all don't want to miss miss some of them opportunities. I know you slipped that investment in there. Hey, it's it's some big things coming. Y'all don't want to miss that. Don't tell nobody. nobody. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. Well, look, this is Black Wolf for the song. Sign it out. Peace. Peace. When something happens to your kitchen, you might say, This is ludicrous. But that won't fix your home. That will only get you the rapper, Ludicrous. Having trouble? Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. You need to file a claim? Holla at State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. You can file a claim on the app or call us. Thanks, Mr. Chris. No matter how ludicrous the situation, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois.